0: Welcome to PenSEP Series. Barbara Howe is the former executive co-director for Harvard Innovations and Ventures in Education, a campus organization that supports educational entrepreneurship at Harvard University. Previously, she founded the Asian Women's Leadership University. An educational startup dedicated to establishing a global women's leadership university based in asia she has also practiced as a corporate lawyer in the hong kong offices of cleary goodlib steen and hamilton and ellen Overy. she's a graduate of smith college and the university of michigan law school she's currently completing her first book as well as her doctorate at harvard university where she studies the ethics of organizational leadership in her free time she enjoys advising young entrepreneurs swimming at walden pond running along the Charles River, and evening strolls through the back streets of Cambridge. Where, where did you grow up?
1: Um, I'm originally from San Francisco.
0: And uh, did you grow up there?
1: Yeah, yeah, I grew up there. My parents are originally from Taiwan, and they had come over in the 70s. So, but I, you know, my siblings and I were born and raised in San Francisco.
0: Just, just in time for the digital gold rush.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I missed that. I had gone off to college and law school and so on before then, or how was it?
0: How was it growing up there?
1: Um, it was nice. I, uh, you know, I was kind of a studious student, so I, you know, my, you know, people always think that because you're from San Francisco, you know, kind of the city really well, but the fact is, you know, I left when I was 18. So most of the time I was walking from my house to the bus stop, taking the bus to school you know, going to school and then taking the bus back home, so I didn't actually get to explore the city very much, uh, you know, as a kid, I would say.
0: And then, when you were 18, like, what, what, what were your next steps?
1: Um, well, so my next steps were, um, well, so well, I can tell you sort of chronologically, uh, what I ended up doing was going to a uh, private liberal arts women's college in Massachusetts which I think was pretty unusual. You know, most people were going to, you know, the UC schools like Berkeley and so on. But I really wanted to kind of get that East Coast education. So I ended up going to Smith. It was also a women's college. Um, and I had always wanted to go to law school. So after that, I had then also gone to law school um, at the University of Michigan, which was also great.
0: Was there like, was there, do you remember like a formative experience that shaped, shaped you at that time?
1: Oh, I mean... Well, I mean, Patrick, should I be totally honest here?
0: Yeah, whatever you want.
1: No, no, no. I mean, I had a lot of formative experiences. One would be, you know, in college, falling in love, you know, studying abroad in England, traveling the world um, in, in many ways. Um, 9-11 happened when I was in college. That was kind of made a big mark on me as well. So there were kind of these major milestones, Um both in, like I would say, school, professional life, uh, personal life, yeah.
0: And then, how did you, how did you think about your future and your life after, after you finished college?
1: Well, so after college, I knew pretty clearly I wanted to go to law school. I had actually done a couple investment banking summer internships in college. Like, you know, after my sophomore year, I worked at Goldman Sachs in New York City. That was actually the summer of nine eleven. Um, and then the summer thereafter I in college this is many years ago now, I worked um, at JP Morgan Chase in Hong Kong. Um, so I knew from those summer experiences that I didn't want to do investment banking um, and that I wanted to continue to pursue my education and you know go to law school as opposed to get like an analyst job on Wall Street. So that's what I ended up doing. Um, so I went to the University of Michigan um, and then I ended up doing some capital I was a capital markets lawyer in Asia so, I guess the summer internship in Hong Kong in investment banking was important because in law school, it made me realize I wanted to go back to Hong Kong um, and also to be in law as opposed to like finance. And
0: then, um, what what were your first steps when you started your career?
1: Um, Well, it was actually really easy. Um, Law school is kind of built, I mean, you know. Back then, I graduated from law school in 2006, and that period of time, you know, the economy was actually really strong. Um, And they recruit, you know, a year or two before you actually graduate. So, you know, the system is actually pretty well-greed. You you show up at law school, you sign up for this thing called on-campus interviewing, you know you send out your one-page resume to various um, law firms and then you get like 30 interviews lined up all over that you know oci on-campus interviewing week so you show up you know at this kind of hotel and you go into these different rooms and do these interviews and kind of by the end of the process you've got a number of offers there's actually a pretty um you know this is this is kind of the dangerous thing about this path is that it's kind of seductive you know you just get onto the conveyor belt And in many ways, you just stand there, and the process takes you through. So, you know, I ended up getting a number of offers. I I took one where I could work in Hong Kong, um, and I ended up getting the full-time offer there. So that's how I ended up in Asia. Um, And I would say, you know, that was I was pretty lucky because most people, in order to get to Asia, you have to start out in New York first. But I got to go straight um, and start doing international work, kind of right out of law school. Um, So, yeah, it was a really... It was uh, it was an exciting time you know
0: and then how was how is Hong Kong and your, your life as a lawyer
1: <laughs> Have you been to Hong Kong Patrick? Yeah
0: yeah it's it's pretty awesome.
1: it's it's an awesome city. it's what I I and many other people call an adult playground. There are you know great hikes the food is amazing. Um, You're meeting people from all over the world, Uh, it's really easy to make friends there, sort of a great nightlife, there's just so much Hong Kong has to offer, Um, and to be kind of in your mid-twenties, you know, I graduated from law school at age 24, Um, it was like really exciting to be young and single and have this kind of what seemed to be like a really cool job in Hong Kong and to be traveling both for work and for fun, and you, you feel like you're kind of living this high life and, you know, going to these fancy restaurants and clubs and so on. Um, so it was, you know, for your first real job, it was quite exciting. Um,
0: how long, how long did you end up staying?
1: So I ended up working for four years till 2010. Um, and, and then, you know, I think for even in law school, I knew I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get a PhD. So I kind of the earlier part of this conversation, i had said that, you know, you asked me what, what was like a transformative experience? Well, one was I had met a, person who had done a PhD or was in the process of applying for PhD programs, which I had never sort of thought of in college. So it was, I sort of left the seed that I myself also wanted to, you know, potentially pursue sort of graduate, graduate education. So that's what I ended up doing. So now I'm a doctoral student at the ed school. um, And I do a lot of, I do various kinds of research. Um, on ethics, on adult learning, on entrepreneurship, so, yeah.
0: Well, and what, what, are you, what are you most excited about? And, and how, maybe how was how your PhD program? Like, that must have been a different experience compared to, like, you know, corporate lifestyle in Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, well, there was a little bit of a, uh, what's the word, like a transition. So I ended up leaving corporate law and founding an educational startup, and I worked at my startup for about four years quite intensely. Um, the idea was to establish a Global Women's Leadership University for women from Asia and the Middle East. You know, I had been living in Hong Kong. I'd been traveling to, you know, I had deals in like Sri Lanka, the Philippines. Um, you know, I had been traveling around that region. And I realized that there were so many bright people, but they didn't kind of have the Smith education that I had had. So that led me to start that startup. Um, we. Ultimately, did not succeed at that vision, but that that sort of experience led me to the Ed School. You know, a couple of my mentors said, "Clearly, your passion is in education. Maybe you should pursue graduate studies there." So, I ended up um, coming to the Ed School here at Harvard, and, um, and I'm now uh, starting my fifth year as a doctoral student. And I'm, you know, I, I like the I like the liberty, I like the intellectual liberty um, to be able to kind of explore. Ideas that you're interested in, you know.
0: How did you? How do you think you discovered your purpose within education?
1: Um. Well, you know, so even though I was describing like my corporate law life, like that was, I I feel like I probably had one of the best situations in in legal, like in the legal realm. You know, I had a really great job. It was like very interesting in many ways, but. And, you know, there are a lot of sort of perks to that type of job. But even then, I could see I was not fully satisfied. And so I think that's where I began to realize that, you know, on the surface, things can seem very, like, nice. You know, I think other people might, you know, see you in kind of an enviable position. But when you're, I I myself knew I was not 100% satisfied with that lifestyle. It did not give me the full kind of satisfaction that I was looking for. And I thought academia might be it. So, so far I'm like quite happy being in academia. Like this life is more satisfying to me than a life in corporate law. And I've had to make this like mental shift. You know, my brother's a lawyer, he works at Twitter. You know, he's done the whole law route. Um, But I I feel good making the shift to education because it's where my passion really lies. Um, And you know, why is it there? because I've been really lucky to have a really good education and I see that not a lot of people do, you know, and I see the good that it can, that comes from it. So, you know, you try to do something meaningful and impactful with your life. That's also interesting and stimulating to you. And to me, it's in this field.
0: Yeah. What do you think was the most important lesson you learned, um, when you were working on that startup, that university?
1: Oh my God. Well, there were so many lessons. Um, honestly, I think one of the key lessons I learned was the meaning of power. Um, you know, that is a word that's often thrown around, but I've now, I think I have a better understanding of sort of politics and how, um, sort of how what are the levers of influence? There are various kinds of levers of influence. There's like political influence, there's sort of financial influence. There's influence by stature. And I think I, I you know I started I was I started the project when I was twenty eight. I, I don't think I really truly understood what power was like. Um, until I sort of yeah until I was in that project. I began to see different, what is it, like weights of authority. Um, We also see the impact of bureaucracy, you know, one of the things that one of the key reasons we didn't succeed in that project is we couldn't get the Ministry of Education in Malaysia to grant the university license, even though we had the support of, you know, the governor of Penang, we had the support of the prime minister, presumably of Malaysia, we couldn't get the bureaucracy to kind of get on board. So yeah, I mean, look, I, I learned a lot of lessons. I ended up writing a book, which I'm about to finish, I hope soon, that basically captures all of the lessons that I learned from that experience. Plus, I, inc- you know, I interviewed seventy other young founders and asked them about the lessons they had learned, and so that it led to that sort of next project.
0: Cool. Well, um, so, where do you see sort of f- the future of um, education, since, since that sort of your expertise?
1: Um, I mean, so this one is a hard question to answer because people actually aren't really sure. There are a lot of people who aren't really sure, a lot of smart people who aren't really sure. So for example, you know, right now, you know, two things are really important, ed technology and online um, courses. So people think this area is hot, but they're not really sure how to leverage it. So even if you can come up with, I don't know, an interesting educational te- technological tool, people aren't sure, how do you get it into the schools? Does it really enhance education? Um, how do you get buy-in from the district and so on? Um, same thing with sort of online education. These online courses seem very appealing, but you know, a recent study that actually my colleague did you know, they find out that it's not, you know, people think the promise of online courses is that it it allows people who don't have access to education to have this online resource that is free and easy to access, but they find that those aren't the people who are using it. People who are signing up for these online courses are the sort of the normal people you would expect who already have, you know, they're already going to these, um, you know, they already have access to education so i think we're actually in this murky space where we we don't really know you know And then there's the cost of higher education people are thinking it's very unsustainable so i think it's actually a very murky area right now
0: and like maybe going back to the concept of power how do you, how do you understand power now and how do you measure the impact that you can have within the work that you do
1: oh well well, here this sounds really naive but you know one of the things i learned is that people often say things um that they don't mean you know i think that wasn't really obvious to me but i had a you know a meeting with uh what's his name gordon brown um i had bumped into him and i had i wanted to have a meeting with him and he said sure yeah we can have that meeting why don't you contact my secretary and i contacted his like assistant or whatever and they basically you know wrote me off But I was just kind of floored that, well, you know, if you don't have time for me, just say you don't have time for me. You know, don't give me the runaround and say, yes, you're happy to meet me and then not actually follow through. So, I mean, I guess maybe a little bit my naivete kind of wore off in the process. Um, Yeah, same thing with like power, you know, um, in many ways, people's stature is more important than people's substance. So kind of people's, I don't know um, status is more important than let's say a a person's argument. That was like one thing that kind of stood out for me.
0: Yeah. Um, in, in light of, you know, startups and technology and all these things that are happening, how do you see the academic sphere being transformed? I mean, it's already been transformed, you know, some of the things you mentioned, but how else do you see it like being transformed?
1: How do I see education being transformed?
0: Well, maybe the like you know academia in, in particular, which is um, which is a very old sort of institution and and hasn't had that much innovation if you think about it.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I'm not sure how much it is being transformed. I think what's happening is that. Well. I, it's it's hard to say. It's there's almost like a bimodal kind of conversation. There's like one group of people where I think education continues to be more and more significant. So there's this extension for, you know, of learning of education into distance learning, into online learning, into professional education, into continuing education. I think there's for one group, there is this, you know, expansion of educational opportunity. And I suspect that for another group, There actually has not been much growth, so that there's this kind of division of opportunity. Um, I have to be perfectly honest. In my world, I work more with, um, you know, a group of people who are very privileged, and you know, are they're in a cohort where they're pursuing education at multiple levels. As I said, like professional education, executive education, and my day-to-day work isn't necessarily with a group of people who, you know. Um, aren't receiving those opportunities. Yeah. You know, I would say, like I, I'm a teaching fellow at Harvard for this one undergraduate class in entrepreneurship, and I have students from sort of very interesting countries. They're from India and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and all of those kids are actually from a very privileged, you know, background. And so that made me think that if you're going to be an educator in a place where you're working with very privileged students, the job of the educator is to instill a sense of responsibility. But if you're working with sort of a less privileged population, I think the job of the educator is to instill a sense of possibility.
0: Yeah. If, if you could um, talk to maybe a group of refugees, if you, if you look at Europe, there's so many um, refugees um, pouring into Europe. And, and you could talk to like a group of young uh, teenagers, like what would you tell them and like how could they leverage their, um, you know, their education and you know in many ways, they don't have the access that a lot of people in the Western world have?
1: Wow, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I would be the best person to speak to that audience. I mean, I don't know all that well sort of the refugee situation. I don't know how they get absorbed into the sort of host countries that they you know migrate into. Are they allowed into the educational system? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Or are they kept in refugee camps where they, you know, there are these sort of ad hoc, you know, schools being set up. So I'm not sure I'm the best person to speak to that issue.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, so within, within all the ideas that you're pursuing, what are you most excited about, you know, within your research and, and the things you're working on?
1: yeah that i can speak more to so i so here's something i realized um there are a lot of professors and they have these um you know research labs um and they get these postdocs and PhD students to you know do, do their research. And I was like, well, how are they creating all these labs? And I realized, oh, they have money, and so they can hire these people. But I was like, well, why can't I do that? So basically, this summer, I created my own research lab. It's called the Leadership Lab Initiative. And I basically just created a little paragraph flyer. I sent it out to my alma mater, Smith College, and the other colleges in the Pioneer Valley, like Amherst and so on. And we basically got five interns this summer from um you know two from amherst one from columbia one from Mawr, one from smith um, and we're working on i think a lot of interesting exciting ideas like one idea is this idea of um generation f you know we began to realize that that we are part of a historical period where a lot of young people are sort of trying their hand at entrepreneurship in a way we think they haven't been doing in the past so we're tagging that as gen f and we have one study trying to research, well, what is causing the uptick? One, is there an uptick in young people engaging in entrepreneurship? And what are the causes of that? So that's one kind of exciting study for us. Um, another study that we're doing is on startups as deliberately developmental organizations. There, there's a professor here named Bob Keegan who's actually just retired. And I guess a couple of years ago, he came out with this Idea in this book on DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations, and so we, you know, the idea being DDOs being like a place where you can grow and learn, and um, there's much more emphasis on the person as opposed to just the employee. And so we were we were hypothesizing that startups might be really. Interesting site of study where we might find DDOs for lots of reasons, right? You you can't recruit necessarily the best people, so you need to groom them, you need to grow and develop them. So, we're doing one study there. Um, We're really interested in ethics. Um, So, what you know, we have this idea of a spectrum of ethical responsibility. Um, So, we have this hypothetical and we're testing the hypothetical to see how people people respond to the hypothetical, it's a hypothetical leadership scenario, and see if we can identify true guardians versus tribalists versus bureaucrats versus people who are more craven. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting ideas that we're working on.
0: Um, is there anything anything else within Essex that that you can, like, elaborate on?
1: Yeah. Um, so, now this is getting kind of academic, but one of the ideas we're really... That the ethical, the study of ethics is built on, is this distinction between responsibilities of duty versus responsibilities of virtue. So, responsibilities of duty are all the things you're supposed to do, like pick up your kid after school or pay your taxes or like not litter. Um, then there's a realm of responsibilities of virtue, which are the things you don't have to do, but if you did, would be good. And we actually have a lot of examples of this kind of in our day to day life. So, for example you've heard of like bystanders, right? People who just stand by and don't do anything. But there's now this movement to become an upstander. And you see these in schools, right? Like if some kid is being bullied, you know, you can, another student can be an upstander and, and kind of call out that bully. So that is a great example of um, duty versus virtue. You know, the, the upstander doesn't have a duty necessarily to, to intervene, but they can exercise a responsibility of virtue and and stand up. So another example would be like the non-racist versus the anti-racist. Well, the non-racist is someone who's not a racist and that's fine, Um, you know, but you can also do more. You can be an anti-racist. You can be someone who sort of is actively working towards a more equitable um, society. So for me, I think there's this whole realm of research It's almost like in the realm of positive psychology where you're looking at how people can exemplify greater and greater levels of responsibility. And so, you know, I could go on about this, but um, like, as I said, in ethics, the one spectrum we're trying to um, explore more is a spectrum from criminal to guardian. You know, at the lowest level, you have the criminal, the highest level, you have a guardian, someone who's trying to serve not their own interests, but social interests.
0: Yeah. So I'd be interested to understand, um, you know, going back to your startup when you, when you, when you worked on that university, um, like what else did you learn in terms of like navigating through this, you know, sort of world of power and bureaucracy and where you have to deal with all these people not very, um, you know, comfortable or that they don't have the incentive to adopt new things. Like... If you would start, you know, a similar venture or something else, like, how would you think differently about navigating through this? I
1: mean... I think maybe the biggest thing is learning to, to identify people's interests, which are going to be natural. They may not necessarily be the most high-minded interests, but it is natural that people will have different motivations. And I think to be, you know, I think to be an effective leader to lead an organization well, you can't be naive about those motivations. You need to really understand people, understand what drives them, what drives each unique person, um, and speak to that kind of interest. And I think before I hadn't really thought in that way. I thought, oh, well, we have this really great goal of establishing this university for women. Like, obviously, aren't we all on board with that? And it's not to say that people aren't, that they don't have that bigger goal in mind. But I think you do have to remind people of the bigger goal. Um, You do have to remind people that our job is to serve as guardians and to be thinking of the larger interests as opposed to your own interests. And at the same time, you can't kind of be naive or ignore people's you know kind of personal maybe even more base interests you know people want prestige people want titles people want um to be in the limelight uh people want to get their way you know those are natural things and to not be sort of afraid of recognizing it and then therefore being able to better handle that i think that's like a key lesson that you know, as a 28 year old, I never really quite, as an idealistic 28 year old, I don't think I really quite understood.
0: And if you you could give your younger self sort of advice um, about how to navigate through like your life, what kind of advice would you give yourself? You know, maybe let's say at the time of high school.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know, you know, so far I was actually looking back, I think I'm pretty happy with my um, choices. You know, I made I've made various choices in terms of career and so on, and actually, so far, I think I'm pretty pleased. And I think maybe the reason I'm pleased is because I've been really honest with myself, with the things that I care about, the things that matter to me. Um, like, so here, here, since you have this philosophy bent, like one one like little philosophy thing that I like. Well, I got I have a couple of these little, you know, little lessons, but one is. Um, Well, yeah, yeah. okay, here's one like moments of, um, or moments of transition or periods of transition are moments of opportunity. So, you know, anytime I was transitioning to a new thing, I use that period of transition to be a risk taker and try something I traditionally would not do. Like, so for example, You know, when I graduated from law school and I was about to start my law firm job, I was really still curious about international development. So I had ended up spending the summer before um, starting my full time job. Um, I spent that summer going to Uganda doing international development work. Um, I ended up learning from that experience. I wasn't the best person to be living in Uganda and doing that type of work. It wasn't I wasn't best suited for that type of work. But I think those are examples you know, where I very actively tried to, you know, during these periods of transition, I tried to kind of be a risk taker because you have a safety net anyway, you know what you're going to do next. And I think that's like a kind of a healthy way to be a risk taker and yet also be prudent. Um, But yeah, I think being really honest with yourself, what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy, and then actually having the courage to kind of follow through on that, you know, Um, I think a lot of people do have a sense of what they like or don't like, but it's really hard to kind of, for example, get off the conveyor belt, you know, get off of a process that so far is, you know, on its face functional, but may not necessarily be the most satisfying.
0: So as as we sort of reimagine education, how would you define even what, what is a good education?
1: Yeah, I mean here, here I'm influenced by my advisor. He, you know, he had studied the idea of multiple intelligences, but he realized like you being intelligent is absolutely irrelevant, and in fact could be harmful if you use your intelligence for sort of bad purposes. So he really became interested in ethics and concepts of responsibility, and I feel very much aligned with his views. You know, I think education is great, but education for what? You know, I think education should be for the self. It should be to develop oneself to be, you know, either a critical thinker or someone who can, um, you know, evaluate ideas and, you know, have a certain amount of autonomy and control. Right. So I think education is kind of important for personal development purposes, but then I also think education, like, you know, for a more civic purpose, you know, how do we create citizens that are effective leaders and, um, workers and, uh, employers who are doing the right thing, I think that's a huge domain of work. You know that that's a key purpose of education. If you're using education purely for yourself with no other benefit, you know I don't think that's the best use of what this resource.
0: Um, and maybe one last question. You know, twenty years from now, if you can sort of imagine um, a new world, you know where. You know, education is empowered by technology and more accessible to people. Like, how would you imagine education? I know it's a very broad question. You know, education is also very broad. But what what do you what do you sort of see the problems in education right now, and and then where do you see sort of the solutions and sort of where you can sort of imagine um, new perspectives?
1: Wow, I mean, Patrick, this is like the million dollar question. You know. Um, I mean, I think if education is done right, it is a creative process. So it, 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 facilitates and fosters a generative process where people who have gone through this process are more able to express themselves. They're more able to author and kind of create their ideas. They're more able to, um, influence others. Um, It's a productive, kind of generative, creative process. And I'm not necessarily sure that's always the way education is. You know, education can be very lockstep. It can, um, it can sort of, sort of dull the mind by forcing you to go through a series of hoops that you just need to cross. So I think education in its sort of most ideal form is one where the participant who goes through this process is more creative, is more expressive, is more productive. That's how I would, as a principal. Now, what does that look like in the future? I really don't know. But, you know, I see it a little bit with, let's say, entrepreneurship. You know, I'd say a, a sort of prior form of pedagogy was experiential learning, right? So you would you know, do service learning projects or you would engage in like a live problem solving project. I think that's great. Um, I think entrepreneurship is like the 2.0 version of experiential learning. Actually starting a company while you're still a student is like a more maximal way of like doing experiential learning. So, I, you know, I'm curious if we continue down along that path. It seems like we are. Um, I think that's a good thing.